It is 1804, and the world is in the middle of an industrial revolution. Over one billion people populate the planet, most of whom live in rural farming communities. The only cities in the entire world to host more than one million people are London and Beijing. It's taken the whole of human history, tens of thousands of years, for the world's population to reach the one billion mark. But the rapid improvements in agriculture and more plentiful food production means that it only takes another 120 years for this population to double to 2 billion in 1950. The Industrial Revolution also kick-started another trend. Urbanisation. New rail connections see people move to cities seeking better work opportunities in new factories and businesses. These cities are serviced by growing infrastructure systems, from road networks to water supplies and underground sewer systems. Growth is fast and explosive. By 1900, there are 17 cities that are home to more than one million people. And just 50 years later, in 1950, there are 75 cities with more than one million inhabitants. London and Beijing are dwarfed by the world's fastest growing city of Tokyo, which by 1950 has over 20 million inhabitants. Over the last 70 years, this growth has got even faster. Today, there are over 500 cities with more than one million people living in them, and 33 of these are so big that a new name was needed. These huge cities, with more than 10 million people, become known as megacities. Today, 55% of the global population lives in cities, more than 4 billion people, and forecasts by the United Nations predict that this will reach 70% by 2050. City infrastructure is under more pressure than ever before, and those that don't increase capacity to keep pace with demand and preserve what infrastructure they have will fail to support the masses of people depending on them for their livelihoods. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to explore the growth of cities and the infrastructure that serves them. As cities become more densely populated, planners are increasingly turning to the underground world for new capacity. From metro stations and stormwater storage, to new power supply cables and gas networks. At the same time, existing systems are under more pressure than ever before. In this episode, we're going to examine just how important it is to know as much as possible about the infrastructure we have and the ground that we are building in, so that cities can support the needs of their inhabitants cost-effectively for decades into the future. One of the megatrends that's identified by a number of organisations is, is rapid urbanisation, and that, coupled with population growth, is going to mean or going to drive the need for, for more um, subsurface infrastructure below cities and also a greater uh, longevity or sustainability of those, of those assets. This is Rod Eddies. He's a geophysicist with a background in oil and gas, mining and in major infrastructure. He's the Solutions Director for Land Characterization at Fugro. And Rod is really excited about the ways that non-intrusive techniques delivering geodata can tell us more about what's happening underground. Shining a light on that elusive subsurface 
that is the key source of risk for many infrastructure projects. In the past, the only way to understand what was happening underground was to open it up, a bit like in the medical profession. You know, uh, 70 years ago, if you had a problem, uh, inevitably, <laughs> you might end up with uh, going into hospital and, and having a surgeon poke around a little while before finding out what the problem was. But these days, with triage and early scanning, surgeons do a whole host of investigations to identify problems, only picking up a scalpel when it's time for precise and targeted procedures. And then, you know, medical resource can then be applied to sort the problem out. And that has, that has two benefits for the patient. It's, in general, a better medical outcome for the patient, but it's also a better outcome for the, if you like, for the medical industry as well, in that resources expertise, time, are, are better spent doing the right things well and doing them quickly. The same can be said of ground investigation. Rod points to a raft of tunnelling projects planned around the UK as examples where early scanning could save money, preventing future problems. As some of these structures get deeper, the, the, the cost of direct investigation ramps up significantly. Direct investigation means digging into the ground using a range of borehole coring techniques, cone penetration testing, dynamic probing or other invasive methods. The problem is that the more frequently you do this, the more it costs. We carried out an investigation in the northeast of England, for example, for a tunnel uh, that was, was going to be designed to be aligned at a depth of, say, between... 250 and 350 metres. So the cost of direct investigation at that depth becomes very, very significant. And it's just not possible for project owners to drill to assess problems at basically infinite cost. It doesn't make sense. So screening the ground using geophysical techniques to calculate where the areas of risk lie and where the invasive investigation is needed is the kind of triage that growing cities need. Especially as tunnelling, whether for metros, utility tunnels or underground structures, can be very expensive. Tunnel outturn costs we know exceed 100 million euros plus per, per linear kilometre for, you know, for an average sized transport tunnel. And that is because the works are difficult, time-consuming, and require expensive machinery to bore through the ground. And most of the time, city planners and project owners don't know what's under there, making the projects vulnerable to risk. And there are a whole host of risks underground. Well, a ground investigation is critically important. This is Jonathan Gammon one of the most experienced ground engineers in the world. I've stayed in ground engineering effectively for now 45 years. I've been very fortunate to work for consultants and contractors, and I've been very fortunate to work in a number of different countries, in Switzerland, as I've said before, so in Europe, in the United Kingdom, over in Ireland, and then across the globe, going through the Middle East, Africa, um, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, where I lived for now a total of 10 and a half years, divided into two different intervals of time, and then four fantastic years down in New Zealand, working down there um, before coming back to, uh, to the UK. And as a chartered engineer and a chartered geologist, he is a member of almost every professional institution you can think of. 
I'm a member of the Institution of Civil Engineers, the Geological Society, the American Society of Civil Engineers, and as a result of being in New Zealand, I'm a fellow of, the a fellow of what's now Engineering New Zealand, and um, a member of the Hong Kong Institution of Engineers. And I've, re I've kept those memberships because it's really, really a good way of keeping up with what's happening in these different parts of the world. He was also chairman of the UK's Trade Association of Geotechnical and Geoenvironmental Specialists, AGS. Most recently, at the end of 2019, early 2020, I was able to set up within AGS an instrumentation and monitoring working group, and I'm now leading that group at the present time. But wherever you are in the world, whether a megacity planning a new metro or a new fast-growing population centre trying to eke out capacity in its existing sewers, Jonathan says that knowing what is in the ground and what the ground really consists of is crucial. Knowing the ground, the nature of the ground, the, the type of materials that are in the ground, the soils, the rocks, but also the groundwater and, and possibly other factors like ground gases. There may be natural ground gases or indeed man-made gases that exist in the ground. But really, uh, one has to have a thorough understanding of the ground conditions. In some instances, that information is gathered late in the whole process of going from planning a project as, and starting to implement a project. And, and the later that information about the ground comes available, the more difficult the project becomes. And just because a city has already had a lot of underground development doesn't mean we know all that we need to know. And for quite a long time in London, we thought really that we understood the structure of the geology in London, that there were, I think, if I remember correctly, four main faults that we had to know about running through London. In fact, there are hundreds and thousands of them, as has been discovered from more detailed surveys that have been undertaken. And they're very significant. These changes in the geology, these changes in geology that occur as a result of faulting, uh, the influence that can have indeed on the groundwater regime, as well as the nature of the ground under your feet, is all very important. So one can make the presumption if you step back from it and say gosh there seems to be an awful lot of information already why do I need to bother well the answer is that you do need to bother. Five years ago Jonathan led the biggest ground investigation that the UK has ever seen for phase one of the planned high speed two railway which runs between the cities of Birmingham and London. Where there are very deep cuttings being formed in materials where no one's dug anything much more deeper than a, a, a drainage ditch on a farm, you really, and you're going to put a 30 metre deep trench through the ground, cutting through the ground, then, then you've really got to know the, the ground conditions. But within a city, it's the same. On, on city sites, uh, because of the impact that you might have on the neighbouring structure, the neighbouring development, all the neighbouring infrastructure, the buried services, utilities, assets that are around you, and how are they going to behave? So it really is important to, to know what the ground conditions are. One of the challenging things about High Speed 2 is that it runs through both rural and urban areas, requiring a range of data gathering techniques to tell the designers everything that they needed to know about avoiding existing infrastructure and how the ground would affect new structures like bridges and tunnels. Certainly in, in cities, uh, one needs to know a lot about the uh, buried utilities, the, the assets that are buried in the ground. And that investigation is now often carried out using what we call ground penetrating radar. And that technology has come on at a tremendous rate. Ground penetrating radar is one of the scanning technologies that Rod mentioned earlier. And it sends electromagnetic radiation into the ground with the returning signals revealing a lot about the subsurface. And depending on the amount of energy that goes into the system, in effect, um, you can penetrate deeper into the ground. Other ground scanning technologies include newly developed 3D passive seismic screening, which detects low frequency vibrations. 
Coupled with advances in computing power and algorithmic capability, we can do more with this remotely sensed data than ever before. And if we think about just as a small set, a small subset of, of technological advancements, say in seismic receiver technology, it's now possible to place passive receivers on the ground in an urban or an industrial site, not actually carry out a seismic survey actively, but just listen. Listen to the ambient noise that is traveling at the earth interface. And by recording that information, we can actually extract a three-dimensional representation of geotechnical properties below that site without actually actively having to you know, create signals that can be uh, measured and, and processed. Research over the past three decades has shown that the ambient noise ever present in the city or industrial landscape propagates as a function of the geotechnical properties of the earth. So if we can record that ambient noise and apply some fairly smart algorithms to that noise, it's almost like a free gift. A free gift that can give a baseline of critical information for the planning stages of a project, broadly describing the lateral and vertical variations in ground conditions, for example, changes in bedrock depth or the presence of geohazards. All such initial site screening techniques form the first phase of what Rod calls Fugro's new ground risk management framework. The second phase is all about gathering more detailed geodata to inform design, as Jonathan described for High Speed 2. This phase is something that Rod calls integrated digital site characterization, and here data management and hardware development become really important as more detailed studies of the ground are required to characterize critical areas. Advances in technology have helped here too with traditional techniques such as cone penetration testing being able to be carried out at greater depths and below hard surface layers. So initial site screening and integrated digital site characterization, that's broadly about how the ground conditions vary and what are the key risks. This all leads to phase three of this framework, analysis, design and advice. How will the ground and the asset respond to loads? you know, as part of design. And then this design can be calibrated by testing foundations prior to construction, which is the fourth phase of Rod's framework and is an area where there are major opportunities for cities planning new infrastructure to do things better, but only if they have the data. So in the absence of site-specific information relating to ground behaviour under loading, foundation design tends naturally to be conservative. But we found that having access to additional site-specific data through full-scale in-situ testing can deliver tangible reductions in geotechnical engineering costs of more than 20%. And for most capital projects, of course, this means millions of pounds saved. Fugro also has a database of pile behaviour created over decades of designing thousands of piles for foundations where um, actual uh, pile capacities, measured pile capacities from sites with similar ground characteristics can be matched to the site in question. So this provides the first opportunity to assess whether the initial design capacity is overly conservative or otherwise, and, and a first opportunity for design optimization. Secondly, pre-construction site scale load tests can be carried out. 
and, and data from such tests will reveal actual pile capacity expressed as the two key components, namely skin friction and end bearing capacity. The skin friction is important as it is a measure of how the ground acts on the pile. Clay, for example, can drag a pile downwards and the bearing capacity is the ultimate load bearing potential of a pile. Now, where initial designs are shown to be overly conservative, then there is an opportunity, of course, to reduce pile size and depth with commensurate savings in cost and time. And the same in reverse if the ground is more challenging than anyone expects. So a site-specific approach can make foundations less expensive and safer. As an example, um, recent investigations centred on pile design within the chalk in southeast England showed that actual pile capacities were much higher than the initial designs, and in particular the skin friction component. So foundation design optimization in chalk, as an example, can provide significant savings in geotechnical construction costs of likely more than 20% if site-specific full-scale foundation design calibration is carried out and, of course, sufficiently early prior to construction. Jonathan says that appreciation of the importance of getting ground data early varies all over the world, with markets such as Hong Kong taking it for granted that more data means less risk. But other countries are not so enlightened. So it's really vitally important to get hold of this information, but the timing of getting hold of that information is, is absolutely critical. And that's really been a problem on, on even major projects now. And if I might refer to, say, uh, examples in Hong Kong where it's, it's expected that one would have this ground investigation information to hand at the start of the design process, it's just an assumption. Um, whereas in the UK, as an example, that's not always the case and it really does lead to some problems further downstream in the project's life cycle. Problems from inappropriate foundation designs to unexpected construction problems, all of which mean that projects cost more than expected. But back to Rod's ground risk management framework, and the final two parts of the puzzle are phases five and six. Geomonitoring during construction to make sure that infrastructure development doesn't impact nearby buildings and other buried services, and is being built to specification. And phase six of the framework, which is monitoring the asset during its operational life, so that instead of using a theoretical design life to calculate its performance, the asset itself can tell the operator how it is performing. And we'll talk more about the role that this can play in smart cities later. Something we haven't yet considered is that many of the world's cities sit by the water, and their exponential growth can be attributed to their position along historic trade routes. So in some cities, infrastructure is not only planned in the ground, it's planned in the water. Cities like Istanbul. Istanbul is one of the most historically important cities in the world. And thanks to exponential growth in its population, it's also a megacity. Over 15 million people live in the Turkish economic capital, which straddles both Europe and Asia. Turkey is in a, is in a kind of bridge country between East and West. And from, from the Asian type, Turkey is the location of the Silk Road or the transportation way. This is Orhan Şimşek. He is the country manager for Fugro Turkey and a geotechnical engineer who has witnessed Istanbul's stratospheric growth. 
He explains that its position as a connection point between East and West has made it a heart of transportation, as well as cultural learning and economic trade. Over the last few decades, he has worked on a range of mega-projects designed to expand the transport network and specifically cross the body of water that forms a boundary between continents at Istanbul in northwest Turkey. Because Istanbul is divided by the two channels. One is the Istanbul-Bosphorus, the other one is the Dardanelles channels in the west. As Istanbul continued to expand, the government began to prioritise the creation of new crossings as Istanbul and its surroundings struggled to support the growing population. Enormous suspension bridges over the Bosphorus were built in the 1970s and 80s, which quickly reached their peak capacities as the population boomed from 1 million in the 1950s to 5 million in 1983. Then the uh, government decided to make the uh, rail system under the Bosphorus. This uh, we call Marmara Rail Project, and uh, I was there as a owner engineer. This was a complex project, including a 13.5 kilometer long immersed tube tunnel, with three underground stations and one surface station, which started operating in 2013. Fugro undertook the entire marine site investigation scope for this rail link in its early stages. Around the same time, the government sought to relieve the road traffic in the city and encourage the growth of other major cities. This was how an extensive motorway investment programme started, including a major crossing over the Izmit Bay in the Marmara Sea. Orhan remembered Fugro's work on the Marmaray Tunnel and so brought them in for site investigations for the new bridge at Izmit Bay. It was really a very successful project and we encountered the shipwreck in this bay. I think 10, more than 10 square kilometer area seismic survey and maybe it's about a couple of thousand meters of high quality drilling. The findings of these investigations were crucial for the bridge designer and owners. Izmit Bay is known to be in the North Anatolian active fault zone. But what was not known is exactly where the fault was located, and therefore where to safely locate the new bridge foundations. In Turkey, 80% of the country is the seismic active area. Back in 1999, a devastating earthquake rocked the area, but there was no scientific evidence on how this seismic activity had affected the seabed morphology. Fugro set about finding out crucial information for planning the new structure, such as bathymetric patterns, the distribution of depressions and antiforms, thickness of loose or mobile sediment cover, and particle geometries. First of all, we have to check first whether any active fault crossing the structure or not. This is very important. If active fault crossing the structures, either you have to uh, cancel the project, Relocate the somewhere else where you don't have the fault, or you have to design in a way that you accommodate this surface structure by the structure. All geohazards have to be carefully identified. And what we also found out by the site investigation, our our, our uh, multi-beam data, uh, bathymetric data, there was a huge landslide recently happened in the corridor of the bridge. These findings were crucial. The bridge had to be relocated 200 metres north to avoid the landslide, and it opened in 2016, by which point the city's population was pushing towards 15 million people. 
The Izmit Bay crossing was not the only bridge to be built in the past decade. Istanbul's population just kept growing and the government planned a third Bosphorus bridge. This bridge was designed with the largest deck in the world, including eight motorway lanes and two high-speed rail tracks. Because of its enormous size, it was designed as a hybrid bridge, combining the properties of both a suspension bridge and a cable-stayed bridge. Around the same time, a new subsea tunnel was also planned, which later became known as the Eurasia Tunnel. Whatever you do in Istanbul, there is customers to use it. These crossings meant even more marine surveys and detailed investigation in the water. And yet it would not be easy. Because of heavy marine traffic, anchoring ships or barges was not allowed, and surface currents in the strait can reach up to four or five knots, making it very challenging for survey vessels. Orhan says that the answer was to use vessels fitted with dynamic thrusters in order to maintain their position in the challenging marine environment, such as the Dardanelles Strait, where yet another new bridge, a bridge that Orhan calls an engineering masterpiece, is currently under construction. The Çanakkale Bridge, it is the longest bridge in the world. The length between the two main span is 2,023 metres. At 3,563 metres long, with a clear span of over two kilometres, it's the world's longest suspension bridge, and it requires 300 metre tall towers to host the cables that transfer the load from the deck back to the ground. It's currently under construction, and data from Fugro's survey proved critical in selecting its final location. An exploratory marine seismic survey was carried out along a one-kilometre-wide corridor of the alignment as a first step of the ground investigation campaign. Running across the Dardanelles Strait, most people are more familiar with this location as being home of the Gallipoli campaign of the First World War. So the team were also on the lookout for unexploded ordnance, shipwrecks or other historic finds. So we call our Fugro Italy, they are uh, our marine geophysical team and they came uh, to Turkey and we performed the one kilometers wide corridor. Uh, we screened the whole area and also we made a uh, geophysical survey from marine to land in order to have the continuous data through the bridge locations. Again, the investigation came up with some unexpected findings, which meant that the second pier of the bridge on the eastern Anatolian side of the connection would have to move. We, we found that the Anatolian side bridge foundation is there are a lot of liquefiable and unstable materials. And there are small landslides we saw from the geophysical and the multi-beam bathymetric survey. The good news was that the bridge did not run through an active fault, so although one anchorage block needed to be moved, the other could remain true to its original design. Moving beyond pre-construction, Orhan explains that monitoring foundations during construction has been another requirement of many of these projects. This requirement to understand the impact on the ground and its surroundings as a structure is being built is the fifth part of the ground risk management framework that Rod talked about earlier, geomonitoring. The sixth and final part of the solution is all about monitoring after a project is complete. And this is where the innovative thinking really comes in. 
My name is Pavel Mihalek and I'm a Global Innovation Director of Fugro. And in this role, I work with our team of uh, over 400 engineers, data scientists, uh, uh, software, hardware developers, uh, and we're introducing the differentiating technology product solutions uh, to our clients. Pavel loves his job. Day to day is uh, very exciting. Uh, we get to have probably the best jobs anyone could imagine. We build robots. We build software cloud platform which gathers data from these robots. We build uh, web portals which delivers data in near real time to distributed uh, asset owners, uh, experts, consultants around the world. And this is important because it is this collection and delivery of data made possible by technical innovation, which means that cities of the future will be able to use sensors to maintain and monitor their infrastructure in real time. A development that seemed like science fiction just a decade ago. Cities are getting smarter, which has lots of implications for infrastructure. From the engineering point of view, a city is just a mix of various type of infrastructure. And now we not only require this infrastructure to operate with higher capacity, but we also would wish it to operate longer. Assets built decades ago are under more pressure than expected as cities expand and new infrastructure is created with a theoretical design life. But many assets can be safely operated beyond this. The key to safe and efficient operation is having performance data. And unfortunately, today we usually don't know what the empirical as built maximum loads or fatigue or safe operating limits are. And it is not for a lack of intelligence, humor, nor machine for that matter, but it's simply because of data, like you've mentioned yourself. It's either insufficiently reliable data, insufficiently connected, or insufficiently easily accessible. And only once we have these three areas developed, we, we can enable a rapid digitalization and, and the digital twin reality. And it all starts with the early geodata that Rod talked about, knowing what the ground looks like and what's in it. What is key to every single type of infrastructure is the ground model. Most of our asset challenges originate from insufficient knowledge of the ground conditions, inappropriate foundation, instability, movement. Uh, even if you look at a road as an asset, a road as an asset is just a very long and very wide foundation with a pavement cover. And uh, particularly in this case, uh, subsurface data is literally fundamental to this type of asset, but really to any assets which we uh, operate. Uh, we need subsurface data, we need uh, as-built data, we need models, uh, we need frequent inspection and real-time monitoring data. And from all of this, we can build digital twins, virtual models of assets using real-time data, which can be used to accurately predict and monitor behaviour. But for this to work, Pavel says data has to be connected. Probably the biggest challenge, uh, particularly in terms of data connectivity, is the fact that usually a different type of data is uh, owned by different uh, uh, either companies or, or, or state governmental uh, type agencies. Most of these uh, data sets are not organized well. And they are not linked to each other, but they should be. Well, smart city. <laughs> smart city digital twin is absolutely the answer. 
data should be globally distributed. The data should be close to uh, the, the, the clients, uh, asset owners, to places where it's most likely to be accessed. But what is extremely important is connectivity of this data, uh, such that uh, we can leverage from subsurface data being collected by maybe one uh, department. Uh, we can leverage and connect it with operating data collected by someone else. But uh, it all needs to contribute to one digital, virtual twin environment. And it is the analysis of this intelligent virtual infrastructure network that tells the owners of the assets that support our major cities what they need to know. The owner of the asset is not actually interested in big data. Big data is something which you need to have in the background. This is how, this is what you need to have in order to derive uh, an advice, an actionable information. At the end, what the asset owner is interested in is what do I need to do to operate these assets safely? What the safe limits are? And what do I need to do to reduce my OPEX, to reduce my um, uh, daily maintenance costs? Uh, but in order to get to this point, you do need to have this l full coverage of lifecycle data. And only then can assets be managed and maintained as effectively as possible in today's ever-expanding cities. And we need to understand all these data sources and link it to one single advice. We're doctors for assets. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, edited and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own urban sprawl is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps and go to our website to sign up for the newsletter and get the latest episode link sent straight to your email.